When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1998, why did London's Metropolitan Police file an intellectual property dispute against the BBC? The answer to that at the end of the show. My name's Tom Scott and this is Lateral. If you've not heard lateral before, imagine three people on a carousel trying to throw arrows of logic at a dartboard hanging off the back of an angry bull. And you're mostly there. So please welcome our angry bullfighters today. We start from Braincraft and from a lot of other things besides Vanessa Hill. Nice to see you, Tom. Good to have you back on the show. Um, this will be going out a few months after we record. This is mm -hmm. how, how the show works. So the question I, I tend to ask guests here is, what are you working on right now that people will be able to see by the time this goes out? So I have just had a paper published in the British Journal of Health Psychology last week. Do you think if I mention it, one person might go and read it. Absolutely. <laughs> or zero. And it is cited to Hill V brackets 2023 in this podcast's note. It's not, it's not in the notes. Yeah, just have a, just Google Hill et al. 2023 bedtime procrastination. You'll be golden. You'll learn so much. Also joining us from his own YouTube channel that is mostly about cookery, Adam Ragusia. Cookery. God, that's wonderful that you call it cookery. Can we just live in that moment for a minute? <laughs> Every time I say something even vaguely British on the last episode, I got I got called out on it. You know, I love no. It's 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 just love. It's just love. And I guess I mean people who know who follow my cookery programs know that it's it's kind of like it's one of my running jokes is that I I'm constantly saying as the Brits would say, but it's because I I I, I was like a public television kid, so I I was raised on like British cookery programs that were aired on public television in the United States 20 years after they aired in the UK. Um, <laughs> well, also very much raised on British television, we have from the Ashens channel and from movies and other things besides, Stuart Ashen. Hello. How are you doing, Stuart? I'm very well, thank you, Tom. At least I am at the moment, so I've got all the questions wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on right now then? What's, what's coming soon for you? Oh, well, we're working on our first horror feature film, but that will be a little while before that's out, a few months at least from when this goes live. So you can just catch up with us on the YouTubes and the Twitch streams and whatevers. Well, hopefully these questions won't be too scary for you or for the audience. And uh, just before we start, uh, we would like to thank today's sponsor, the letter L. You can't live, laugh and learn without it. The letter L. Type it today. Here's question one. Thank you to Max Zollin for sending this question in. How did Roald Dahl explain how this podcast is possible? I'll say that again. How did Roald Dahl explain how this podcast is possible? Is this a spell from the witches where lateral is born out of a bubbling cauldron? <laughs> that's, that's actually my origin story. That's Yes. <laughs> Better than it being like some super racist thing Roald Dahl said being the origin story for your podcast. Yeah. Yeah, we should we should acknowledge that uh, this is not that part of Roald Dahl's writings and thoughts. Well, that narrows it down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Somewhat, yes. 
So, I mean, he wrote a lot of children's books and a lot of tales of the unexpected. Um, I imagine this will probably be about the children's books because they're better known. Very, very much better known. So we are we imagining that he's used the word lateral in some of his writings? Not in this case. Oh, interesting. So he's probably talking about audio in some mm. way, perhaps how our ears work. Yeah, or some sort of early internet theory or something. I don't... Mm-hmm. What if it's just about asking intriguing questions, you know, uh, trivia? Mm-hmm. So we've got BFG, who had very big ears, mm. just throwing that out there. There's that bit in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Mike TV, where they're like digitizing things and um, picking them up the other end, so to speak. Mm. Have a think about that. Oh, fascinating. Ooh. That's actually... It's basically the answer. Talk us through it. Oh, um, well, yeah, there's the bit where, I think it's Mike TV, isn't it? Desperately wants to be on television and because they're all bad children who must be punished in this book for whatever reason. I he, never um, liked that book. <laughs> it's, it's not Even fun. as a it's kid, weird, I never liked it? that book. It just yeah. seemed off to me. Is Mike TV the Western guy in the film? That's He's it. like has yeah. the whole cowboy thing going on. Yeah. yeah, honestly, feels like the author is punishing him for being too American for some reason, mm-hmm. which uh, mm-hmm. doesn't sit well, shall we say? But anyway, he um, yeah demands to jump onto television and gets like digitized through a thing onto a screen. It's like, ah, oh, my TV. But then the horrifying twist is he's too small because television's small, isn't it? And then he's really small forever, or so I can't remember the ending. No, no, no. They yeah. stretch him back out in the taffy stretcher. <gasps> That's it. Yes, wow. yes, absolutely. Yeah, and basically, he's he, isn't the system to sort of send giant chocolate bars through television to people. Basically, yeah. Um, Stuart, you've basically got it. You've remembered everything there. Um, I will quote the original book. You photograph something, and then the photograph is split up into millions of tiny pieces, and they go whizzing through the air down to your TV set, where they're all put together again in the right order. Does that remind you all of anything? The internet? That is essentially how stuff's transmitted over the internet, except this was written in 1964. Everything was analogue. If Roald Dahl had been actually writing with the technology of the time, it would have been some kind of analogue scanning beam. But he specifically said it's chopped up into tiny pieces and sent, and that is, mostly by luck, how the modern internet works. He doesn't get credit for being a futurist, does he, No, he, he doesn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he predicted the whole giant peach thing. That, that happened in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> we all remember the giant peach incident of 14. <laughs> Each of our guests has brought a question along with them. We're going to start today with Adam. Well, this question has been sent by uh, Aelid Volpert. Take the eighth triangular number and add eight. What is commonly bought in multi-packs containing this many items? Take the eighth triangular number and add eight. This is commonly bought in multi-packs containing this many items. Can we start just with the basic definition of what a triangular <laughs> number yeah, is? Yeah, I'd like that. If, that's part, if you know that, Tom, that would be handy. Yeah, thank you, Tom. <laughs> if any of us know that, I feel like the question is going to be easy to solve. My guess is that triangular number is like on the first line is one, and then you have on the next line two, three. So you have one plus two plus uh, three, so that would be uh, 
six. That took far too long. And then on the next line, you have four plus five plus six. So that's going to be another 15. That would be 21. But I'm not going to be able to do the rest of that calculation in my head, even if that is the right definition of a triangular number. I'm not sure it is. But from that explanation, you're getting to multiple numbers? Are there, are there just going to be one number there? Or is this something that we buy that comes in many different sizes? I feel like to to get the answer to this, we don't need to know what a triangular number is. We just need to know something that is sold in a triangular shape or a pyramidal shape or something yeah. like that, where, where you buy a lot of them at once. It's not that type of shape, except in terms of patterns. If I go down to the supermarket, I'm buying toilet paper. You can either buy normally six, nine, or 12. Like mm. it kind of goes up in these multiples of three. Mm. I'm sorry to start to start literally in the toilet, but we can go up from here. <laughs> That's good. That's good. But so you you're thinking three is because you heard triangular number, but there was num another number in the clue. Take the eighth triangular number and add eight. What is commonly bought in multi packs containing this many items? Who buys a multi pack with like? Because the eighth triangular number's got to be fairly big, right? Like who's Ooh, buying? Yeah. Multi-packs of that many things. Americans at Costco. Okay, what live. if it's what if a triangular number is just like one plus two and then one plus two plus three? So you're looking for one plus two plus three plus four plus five, six, six, seven, eight, which would be nine times four, which would be thirty-six, I think. If the eighth triangle number is thirty-six, which sounds like a vaguely reasonable number, you add eight to that, you get forty-four. You're looking for something that's that's in multi-packs of forty-four. If I've got my maths right. Oh, maths, plural. That is, of all of the Britishisms, that one is the most insane. Oh, Adam, I'm come sorry. on. Come Just on. Just let it you go, Adam. Let it go. It makes no sense. <laughs> Why would you put an S at the end of a TH? It's unpronounceable. It makes Because it's short for mathematics. Because it's mathematics. It's mathematics. It's plural. It's where the S on the okay. end of Lego went. It's fine. That is a very logical approach of you, Tom, because I'm sitting here just thinking, what are some products that I buy in random quantities? Right. Like, a, like a ream of paper has 512 yeah. sheets. Is that a triangular number? Is it 44, Adam? Am I right with 44? Yes, you are correct. But I'm not sure how much that number is going to help you. Without, because yeah. you're you're looking <laughs> you're looking for for you're using your hard skills. I think you need to use your soft skills. Like there's cultural clues in here as well. One being the name of the person who asked the question. This question sent by Elad E L A D Volpert. Why would you add eight? Why is there eight extra? I think it's an there's an issue of cultural competency here. So let's see if you're willing to divulge it. Let's go around the, the table and say, what do you celebrate <laughs> around winter solstice? Christmas, so yeah. Christmas? Uh, Not Christmas. But it could also be Hanukkah. It could also be... Um, it sure could be. Is it Hanukkah candles? It is, as you said, Tom, Hanukkah candles. Wow. Because you like one on the first day, yes. two on the second day, yes. ah. three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's a menorah? Is it a menorah? Or, you, or is it just the candles that you're buying? Quoth Elad, uh, the menorah used during eight-day Jewish festival of Hanukkah has room to hold nine candles. One candle is lit on the first night, along with the central shamash, or helper candle. Then an extra candle is added on subsequent nights, again with the shamash present. If you were to use a new candle each time, 
you would need one plus two plus three plus four plus five plus six plus seven plus eight candles plus eight for the shamash, which equals 44. Boxes containing 44 candles are readily available to buy. Some manufacturers include a 45th candle as a spare. Wow. One of my friends has a menorah shaped like a brontosaurus, and it's called a menorasaurus. <laughs> Good luck, folks. Here's your next one. This question sent in by Sam Cook. Thank you. In 2023, why was one corporate sponsor particularly pleased to agree deals with the Iowa State Cyclones football players Caleb Bacon, Tyler Moore, Tommy Hammond, and Miles Purchase? I'll say that again. In 2023, why was one corporate sponsor particularly pleased to agree deals with the Iowa State Cyclones football players Caleb Bacon, Tyler Moore, Tommy Hammond, and Miles Purchase? Iowa? Stuart is writing. Mmm, I've written the words purchase more bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and I've forgotten the other surname, so that doesn't help. Yeah. I'm so sorry that I'm the one who has to ask this question, but which kind of football are you talking about? Uh, this is American football. Okay. Not familiar with that team. That was Caleb Bacon, Tyler Moore, Tommy Hammond, and Miles Purchase. Stuart, I suspect your pen has served you well here. Oh, yeah, because we've got purchase more ham and bacon. <laughs> we have purchase more ham and and bacon. So and we, are, we, are we thinking it's a fast food restaurant, a meat yeah. supplier? Like... Got to be like a butcher's or something, surely, yeah. Uh, it's the Iowa Pork Producers Association. <laughs> yes, you are absolutely right. There is a Dude. photo of them lined up with their backs to the camera <laughs> in in the order that we, we obfuscated for a moment and Stuart, you just saw straight through. Oh, uh, that is it. the football players purchase more ham and bacon. <laughs> That's so perfect. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Stuart, we'll move right on to your question whenever you're ready. Righto. This question has been sent in by Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Since 2019, competitive solvers of Rubik's Cube puzzles have been able to improve a record time by nodding their head. How? Since 2019, competitive solvers of Rubik's Cube puzzles have been able to improve a record time by nodding their head. How? This is a fascinating question. How are they improving the time? How are they nodding their head? How does <laughs> nodding their head lead to them improving the time? That's how I took it, the latter. So I can chime in with a bit of knowledge on competitive Rubik's Cube solving here. Are you a cuber, Tom? Is that I'm what you not, do on the weekends? I don't have the patience for it. it. It requires learning, like this set of rote skills and like algorithms that you can sort out in your head. And the same way that I, I enjoy like magic shows but have never been any good at doing it myself it just requires like so much rote rehearsal and physical training that i just don't have the patience for it but it's one of those skills that is truly a 10,000 hour thing yeah i just i just i don't have enough 
gumption for Rubik's cubing. You don't to... have 10,000 hours spare. I think that's also true. <laughs> I, I hesitated before saying the word gumption because I thought Adam was going to call me out on it. But, um, <laughs> but I can tell you about how they time it. Uh, to time a Rubik's Cube thing, they have an electronic mat and they have to put two hands down on the mat. Uh, they can they can examine the cube, they can take all the time they want to do that. Then when they're ready, they put the cube down, two hands down on the mat, and the time runs from when they lift their hands off the mat to when they have them both touching again, hopefully with the cube solved. Like, that's, that's the electronic timer. And it works for like thousandths of a second. Like, the world record is decided by incredibly precise timing. So it's like four seconds, isn't it? Yeah. The world record. It's crazy. So like a yeah. tiny optimization. I don't know why it would be nodding your head, but like a tiny change to how that works. So think about it this way. So what if you're holding the uh, the the Rubik's Cube and if you're nodding, if you're bobbing, could you be changing your angle of view on each bob to where you like see the bottom of the Rubik's Cube and that way you can like you can be exam examining two sides in each stroke of your rocking, and that could that could make your your decisions smarter. Well, perhaps if the cube is down on the mat and you're bobbing your head forward, you could see some of the other sides of it before you start. So you might have a slight edge on what you need oh, to do. They get loads of time to examine it. I, by the time okay. they start, the really really good speed cubers won't have to look at the cube once they've started. It's all it's all done and in their head. Th think more on that. It kind of reminds me of the photo finish in a 100-meter race, right, where they're just bobbing their head forward, and that can be the difference between a gold and silver medal. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're sitting here, they're slapping their head on this sensitive pad. Is it a facepalm? <laughs> kind of just a head, head slam. No, there's only one nod, and it happens at the very start. Oh, okay. So it's at the very start, like two hands down on the mat, or like where they're, where they're looking and thinking about it. But how would a head nod make a difference? Well, you said something interesting earlier. You said they don't even have to look at it. Huh. Because this is for a very specific record. Is it for cubers with vision impairments? Not directly, no. Blindfolded? It... Yes. Okay, so it's the record for blindfolded Rubik's cubing. Yep. How would nodding your head help you once? Hold on. The Okay. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, Tom's there. I'm there. I'm trying <laughs> to figure out how to phrase it. I assumed that blindfold cubing would work like regular cubing. You get lots of time to examine the cube. You then bring your mask down, put your hands down, and solve it. But maybe the rules are different. Maybe... In blindfold cubing, it includes the time it takes you to think about it. So the actions you have to do are like hands off the mat, reveal the cube, look all around the cube, put your mask down, and start solving. Now, if you wanted to speed that up and you nod your head just hard enough, the blindfold drops in front of your eyes, that would speed you up. Oh, I was thinking about peeking out from beneath the blindfold <laughs> when you nodded, but I think using the nod to have the yeah. blindfold come down is more is better. That that is exactly it because the timer starts wow. when the hands come up and they have to put the blindfold down first. And so the time wow. for putting the blindfold yes. down is included. So obviously somebody once spotted that it's much quicker to go whoop 
than to go like that. So now uh, that is referred to apparently as the nod don, and it's become common <laughs> practice at high levels of the hobby. Fascinating. Thank you to James Prophet for this question. Why did a delegation to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species attempt to remove the mammoth from the extinct list? I'll say that again. Why did a delegation to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species attempt to remove the mammoth from the extinct list? I have two thoughts which I feel are far too logical. One is that they want to be able to excavate bones or something like that. And the other has to do with genetic engineering. They want to splice the genes of the woolly mammoth and have an elephant give birth to it or something. That's where I'm at. How about you guys? Yeah, did that happen? Did they crossbreed like a really hairy elephant or something? I don't. Is that a thing? I genuinely <laughs> there is don't a, know. There is a project currently using CRISPR where they have woolly mammoth DNA and they want to try to create an embryo that they can then impregnate an elephant with. Oh, um, I guess I had two first thoughts. One would be: Are they trying to protect some? area of the planet that would be subject to greater, higher levels of environmental protection if we believed that there was some endangered charismatic megafauna in there. And they wanted to kind of raise the possibility that there could be uncontacted mammoths in this area. And therefore, mm -hmm. this area could be subject to some higher level of environmental protection. Or are they trying to like argue that the modern elephant is a mammoth in the same way that like biologists now argue that like bir modern birds are dinosaurs, they're not descended from dinosaurs, they are dinosaurs. So dino nuggets literally are dino nuggets. Um, <laughs> so could that be it? Where they're just saying, could they be trying to say um, mammoths, actu uh, uh, modern elephants actually are mammoths and mammoths are endangered, everybody knows. Um, so therefore, if we consider elephants to be mammoths, if we taxonomize them thusly, then we could maybe protect this elephant habitat a little bit more. I don't know. Was the question taking them off the endangered list? Off the extinct list. Off the, oh, off the extinct list. Of all those guesses, Adam's last one is closest. About elephants. About elephants. About elephant habitat? Is that the... there's, there's some protection going on here. You're... Is it? Did they do they want to drill for oil in Siberia? <laughs> is that is that in any way related? That's where a lot of the mammoth bones are. So I, I wonder if they're not allowed to do anything like that, explore for natural resources if they're considered extinct and they have a lot of bones there. Yeah, I'm really not sure on this. So is it something like? Was it to protect a specific example of a dead mammoth or something? I... It's to protect something. Is it to protect genetic material from a mammoth that, as Vanessa says, could be implanted into a modern elephant, thus yielding a mammoth baby? Not quite, but you're right that if something is extinct, it doesn't have the protection that it otherwise might. So are they arguing that maybe there's one particular like isolated elephant species, uh, isolated elephant community that they're arguing is genetically closer to the mammoths and therefore must be protected? Um, no, I think everyone, everyone is in agreement uh, that all the elephants should be protected. 
And okay. everyone is in agreement that the mammoth is in fact extinct. But there is a benefit to giving mammoths a non-extinct category. Bear in mind that this is a delegation to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Does it just mean that if we have some kind of mammoth tusk, we can ship it to collectors in China from the US? Now you're heading more down the right area. Is this some kind of like privatization of fossils thing? Yes. So basically, in order to try to clamp down on the illegal elephant ivory trade, where people try to sell ivory across national lines by saying it's not from an elephant, it's from a mammoth, it's from something else. But by banning uh, any kind of ivory-like mm. material, you are able to effectively ban ivory more better. More better. <laughs> Where did that come from all of a sudden? That was basically a sold out of nowhere. Vanessa got me 90% of the way there. Come on now. Oh, it was a team effort. <laughs> yes, elephant poachers and ivory traders would claim that the illegal ivory had actually been harvested from mammoths in glaciers, not from elephants. So if they put the mammoth on the endangered list, not extinct, that closes that loophole. Oh. Were they successful Boom. in doing that? I don't believe so. Because I think I would say removed rather than attempt to remove in my question if it actually worked. <laughs> Vanessa, over to you for the next one. Great. So this question has been sent in by Anonymous from South Korea. In Japan, August 31st is known as Vegetable Day. When is Salad Dressing Day and why was it chosen? In Japan, August 31st is known as Vegetable Day. When is salad dressing day and why was it chosen? We're all looking at Adam, right? We're all looking at the guy who does... Uh, <laughs> look, uh, apparently I get mocked for saying cookery, so chef stuff. Every year Adam is celebrating salad dressing day. Yeah, every day is salad dressing day at my house, um, but we're not at my house, so... <laughs> I will say the nationalities may not be as relevant as you think. Um, does salad dressing take a while to make? Does it have to, like, marinate? Or do you have to cool it for a certain period or something? Or do you just stick a lot of oils together and go, eee. I can't think of any salad dressing that requires being made in advance. And generally you wouldn't because it would the emulsion would break, right? You just have to shake it again. So you would need, I mean, if you're going to have vegetable day, you're going to eat some salad on vegetable day. You would want to have salad <laughs> dressing in advance of vegetable day. You wouldn't want to have your dressing prepared after Vegetable Day because that would mean you have just eaten some dry vegetables. So I'm going to just – let's just go with the obvious. Sometimes sometimes the obvious explanation is, 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 the, is, the, is, the, is the, the truest. There's a, a razor about that from what I understand. So let's just say – On this show? Oh, yeah. I guess that's a good point. Um, but every now and then you throw one in just to screw with people. So what is it? Salad day is the 31st. So let's just say that dressing day is the 30th, right? You're really on the right track. But I just want you to kind of visualize perhaps what the 31st could look like on a calendar and then maybe take a stab in a different direction. All right. So I was thinking it was something linguistic, like uh, that there was a number thing in there, a language thing in there. Um, but I'm now less sure of that because I don't feel like we're required to know Japanese to, to understand this question. <laughs> is it Julian calendar versus Gregorian calendar? Is that the problem? <laughs> oh, 
No. This salad dressing day has existed since the 17th century when, <laughs> when uh, let's the the emperor at the time accidentally misjudged their salad dressing timetable. I don't honestly. Sometimes I open my mouth and the sentence starts, and I just hope that it's going to land. And that one did not. That one absolutely did not. I think you just described how men talk. I mean, I have to give it to Adam. His his logic was really on the right track with thinking about vegetables and eating vegetables on vegetable day and you don't want them to be dry. But just have a think about where you're putting the salad dressing in relation to the vegetables and I really want you guys to visualise a calendar. Oh, well, then it's going to be one of the days where there's an overlap on the calendar because the week's gone uh, over the uh, number gonna over be one the of the 31 days. right so there, there's going to be some days on the calendar where you've got six weeks in the month technically it's just gone over like the sunday or the monday and you have to put two numbers on the same square it would just be if you're looking at a printout of a calendar, like the date that's literally spatially above the 31, which because I don't do maths, I don't know if that's seven or eight behind the 31. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it would be the 24th, but. Well, you got it. Hey, oh. you got there. You got there. What? August 24th is known as salad dressing day. Because it's so salad dressing day was established by the Kenko Mayonnaise Company, of which manufactures and sells <laughs> mayonnaise and dressings. It was chosen because it's the day directly above vegetable day on the weekly calendar, as if the dressing is on top of the salad vegetables. Oh, of course it was set up goodness. by a mayonnaise company. Of mm. course it was. There is um, a calendar. Back when I used to work um, in a newspaper a long, long, long time ago, um, there is just a calendar of international blank days. And every single industry has had one company try and set up a day for whatever food stuff or whatever product they sell. You name it, that day will be somewhere on the calendar. But the, the same day will be International Peach Day and International <laughs> Elephant Awareness Day and International <laughs> Haircut Day. It will all happen on the same day and breakfast radio DJs will fill an entire mm. half hour based on it. It's really just for breakfast radio to give them something to talk yeah. about. But the origin of Vegetable Day uh, is not as well known. It's August 31st because 831 in Japanese is yasai, yasai which means vegetable in Japanese. I knew, I knew there was a <laughs> linguistic thing in there somewhere. That's what you were trying to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to some very quick answers, we have unlocked the shiny bonus question. So good luck to you all. Why did the manufacturer Safety First sell a door fixture featuring a button that did absolutely nothing? I'll say that again. Why did the manufacturer Safety First sell a door fixture featuring a button that did absolutely nothing? It's for kids. It's like it's like the one down at kid level so that they'll reach for that and not the thing that could actually get them in trouble, right? <laughs> and the parent immediately solves the shiny bonus question. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely flawless on the first answer. Superb. Adam has the experience necessary. <laughs> well, so it's it's funny cuz so there's um there's a very famous um professional bass player named Leland Sklar, 
who you might have seen on YouTube because he has a big white beard, but he played he's played like his, their whole his whole life for Phil Collins and James Taylor, and he's he's on a million session. He's like one of the most successful prolific session bass players of all time. He's on a million records that you love, and he had a button that he installed on one of his bass bodies that he called the producer switch. And whenever the producer would say, hey, could we like get that tone a little brighter or something? He would like hit the producer switch, which did nothing. And then the producer would be like, oh, yeah, totally. That's so much better. Thanks, Lee. So what's going on here? Yeah. What you do is you just if they're, they're going to fiddle with something. So you give them something inconsequential to fiddle with and and put the thing that is consequential up higher than they can reach it and make it of a less attractive color. And you'll be fine. It's funny because it's like the opposite of childproofing and babyproofing things where you're trying to block PowerPoints and keep doors mm. shut. Why don't we just add a button instead? I will fill in the details. It's a, it's a safety lock that gets installed uh, next to and over a door handle. Uh, so it stops children from opening the door. It has a useless button on the front that an adult can absolutely push if they want to, to demonstrate that's how you open the door. But the real button is hidden on a hinge at the side of the lock. One of my friends taught her dog how to communicate with buttons. So there are some buttons at the door on the floor that the dog will go up and hit with its paw when it wants to go outside. And I imagine you could train a child to do the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Having young children is very much like a situation where like the dog woke up that day and talked and you're like, oh, the dog talks now. Okay. That's basically what having children is. The very last question then. At the top of the show, I asked this, sent in by Louis Davenport. In 1998, why did London's Metropolitan Police file an intellectual property dispute against the BBC? Doctor Who, innit? The the TARDIS, surely. It is just one of those episodes where the guests (laughs) keep nailing things on the first clue. It's gotta be. Stuart, talk us through it. Well, it's the the old Metropolitan Police box is uh, what... Doctor Who's TARDIS thing is stuck looking at. So whenever he goes through time, it looks like an anachronism, generally, um, unless he goes for a very specific time period. And of course, that was actually modelled on a real uh, Metropolitan Police box from back in the day, when if you needed to call the police in the days way before mobiles, you would have to literally go to a physical box and go, hello, police now, please, and they would hopefully come running. So they must therefore own the copyright to the design, the Metropolitan Police. You've got most of the details there. It's not actually quite how that played out. The Metropolitan Police were complaining that the BBC had tried to steal their design. So how might that have played out? I don't think they would be mad at the show, but maybe they were mad at the merchandising. Like BBC was selling toys. I was going to say, are they selling mm. merchandise? And the, and 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 Scotland Yard or whatever wanted a taste of that sweet, sweet honey. That's basically it. The BBC attempted to trademark the police box in 1996. Mm. Oh. And it took four years to work out. And in Ooh. the end, the BBC won. I mean, I I don't feel badly about that because I'd like to think that the police have better things to do than fight an intellectual property <laughs> case with the BBC, who is a public broadcaster. Yeah. I suppose the police hadn't used it for so long, it becomes sort of irrelevant after a while, doesn't it? Uh, are the police selling merchandise? The police are not selling merchandise. Maybe they would have been able to. Um, but the it was designed in 1928 by Scottish architect Gilbert Mackenzie Trench, which is an incredibly Scottish name. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the ruling was that most people were only familiar with the design because of the BBC and Doctor Who, and also that it only resembled the call box on the outside. <laughs> wow. That's a f fair point. With yeah. that, thank you very much to all of our players who have just been lightning solvers this time round. Congratulations to all of you. Let's find out where can people find you, what's going on in your lives. We will start with Vanessa. Since Tom's YouTube channel is now on a break, you can come right <laughs> over to Braincraft, where I will still be uploading videos about smart things. Adam. I thought you were going to plug something academic, because I was, I was going to get excited. I was going to go read your paper. You just plug your paper. And I mean, you can just, we, we already established you can Google Hill et al. 2023 <laughs> British Journal of Health Psychology if you're feeling bored, if you want something to fall asleep to. That's my plan for tonight. And I'll probably end up talking about it on my stupid podcast because the Adam Ragusea podcast, I don't really have time to write it. So it ends up just being about whatever I'm thinking about that week, whether it's interesting to my audience or not. So I'm going to read Vanessa's paper and probably do a whole hour on that because that's just what I do. And Stuart. Well, if like me, you can't read, you can always see some audiovisual <laughs> stuff over at Ashens on YouTube or watch our Twitch stream. Just Google Ashens, A-S-H. ENS. And if you want to know more about this show, you can do that at lateralcast.com, where you can also send in your own ideas for questions. You can find us at lateralcast pretty much everywhere on social networks, and you can catch video highlights at youtube.com slash lateralcast. With that, thank you very much to Stuart Ashen. Thank you. Adam Ragusier. My pleasure, Tom. And Vanessa Hill. Thanks, Tom. I've been Tom Scott, and that's been Lateral. <laughs>